Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Everybody except for Bobo, who's not here today. This is Cliff, and of course, this is Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and occasionally or usually Bobo. Bobo is not here today, as I just mentioned. He is actually on a plane. I believe he's flying to Hawaii right now, but who knows? So yeah, Bobo's on an adventure. Um, I don't know what he's intending to do, but there will be there will be an adventure, I'm sure, and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But anyway, in the meantime, you're stuck with me. But that's not an entirely bad thing. A um, little bit of news, I guess, out there for you. Um, August is going to be a very interesting month at the NABC, the North American Bigfoot Center. We are planning an, a, a fantastic special guest for August 20th. I'll save exactly who that is for now, but but I know it's going to sell out, and I know a lot of you are going to be sad for not making it. August 20th, start paying attention to the North American Bigfoot Center uh, Facebook page and all that sort of stuff and see if you can be one of the lucky few to get a ticket for this am- amazing event we're planning. Um, gosh, there's so much going on and so much I'm not allowed to talk about, so I'll spare you all that sort of stuff, but just just know that there's cool stuff gonna, that's going to be happening in the next couple of months in the Bigfoot world. Um, nothing earth-breaking or earth-shattering, of course, but it's going to be pretty neat. Um, went out to uh, one of our spots yesterday. We called Easter Island. No footprints to report, but just want to let you know that we're still getting out there. And I guess that's really about it. So it's a whole lot of nothing for you for right now. A bunch of stuff I can't talk about. But today, I think that we're going to have a really interesting guest for a lot of you because I get asked all the time, like literally not a week goes by that I don't get one or two emails at least about the topic of using drones for Sasquatch research. So uh, drones are obviously one of these new toys, new new tools, really, um, that we have in our arsenal to do wildlife research. And today we have an expert in this sort of thing, whether or not he would consider himself an expert, doesn't matter. I know very little about droning stuff. He's an expert, as far as I'm concerned. I'm I'm assuming you're all in my boat. So uh, we're going to be talking to drone expert and computer programmer and general nerd, uh, Rob Evans, uh, formerly of Microsoft. He's a fantastically intelligent, fun guy to hang out with and talk to about his passions. Um, And he was also the drone operator on that reboot Finding Bigfoot episode that we got to film maybe a year, year and a half ago, you know, where we went down to Southeast Ohio, then popped over the border into uh, West Virginia. And we deployed these nighttime thermal using drones and maybe even got one of these things on FLIR. Hard to say what that was. I don't know. I was hearing it. I didn't see it at the time, but um, our guest did. So Rob, Rob Evans, um, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and occasionally Bobo. Hey, how are you doing, Cliff? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. How are you more importantly? I'm great. Uh, I'm really happy to be on the show. You know, I'm a big fan. I love your show and uh, it'll be great to talk nerd talk to some of your listeners. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what we're here for. And again, you were going to be such a, a great resource for our listeners who are interested in drone technology. Um, and of course, drone technology offers a lot of advantages and some disadvantages, I think, to wildlife observation. Um, and we'll get to hopefully a couple, uh, both sides of that coin in just a few minutes. But first, let, let's let's tell the audience a little bit about how who you are um, and your expertise and your passions and your professional career, etc. And um, we'll, we'll start there. Give us give us an upload on that, and then we're going to talk about what got you into the Bigfoot subject. Okie doke. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a super nerd. <laughs> uh, Robert Evans. I was um, a developer at Microsoft for 21 years. I recently retired. So um, I was hired back in 2000 as a software development engineer and did that for 12 years on different product teams. Um, I was the dev lead for the Xbox launch in both Japan and Europe. Uh, I was the uh, dev lead for the mobile engineering team. And then more recently, I was the uh, a principal level field engineer and head of the Windows App Consult team, which was the Windows developer field team. So my team was international. And we work with customers all over the place that were adopting Windows developer technologies. And it was a lot of fun. And all throughout that time, Living up in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, I squatched. I was a secret squatcher, <laughs> so to speak. You didn't share that knowledge with your colleagues at Microsoft? You know, a few of them knew about it. Um, uh, one of them actually told me about your show when it came out, so I didn't know that it had come out. But um, So you're, you're, working, you're working up in uh, Seattle with Microsoft doing, sounds like, largely programming. And you use a lot of words. I don't know what they're, you're exactly talking about, but it sounds like mo- mostly programming stuff, right? Cranking out code and, and helping uh, other software developers to, to uh, write code using our platform. Gotcha. But I had my first encounter when I was 17 in Georgia, of all places. Um, and that same morning, I, I, I saw a juvenile in the early morning peeking out from behind a tree. Um, at least I'm pretty sure it was a juvenile, not a bear. But I wasn't 100% sure. But a friend of mine, Robbie, that was camping with me, saw a large male. He said it was like eight foot tall across the creek, just standing there staring at him. And that was the same morning that I had my sighting. So that was, well, what, 1990. And that that kicked off the fascination for me, I would say, at that early stage of my life. And ever since then, it hasn't just been camping and hiking. It's been camping and hiking with a twist, right, looking for looking for Sasquatch. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause at the end of the day, Bigfooting is essentially camping with the little thing added on there. So exactly. And I was, uh, spe- spectacularly unsuccessful. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's squatching, you know, that's, that's, yeah, I did a, a lot of camping, a lot of hiking. I, I told you at one point, even around 2005, I believe I and two other friends, uh, got a, a seaplane to drop us off up in high in the cascades on a lake in an area that was inaccessible by trail. And we camped there for two weeks, squatching, uh, zero luck, no luck, <laughs> but it was beautiful. It was fun. Yeah. Well, two weeks is kind of just throwing a, throwing a dart at the dartboard and hoping you hit a 20, you know, or whatever that's the bullseye in the middle is, you know? So, uh, two weeks isn't really that long of a time because you can spend two years someplace. And if there isn't a Sasquatch at that one location, you're not going to see it. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, didn't realize it took me a while at least to realize, um, that yeah, you have to be where they are. All right. They're not coming to you. 
No, no. Time time matters. Like you can one night in a better area is better than two weeks in a lousy area. So um, you saw one of these things in Georgia as a young man. Uh, what what eventually? I'm assuming working for Microsoft led you the, to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, correct. So in 2000, when I was hired. Uh, and moved to the Pacific Northwest to work for Microsoft. I was more excited about Bigfoot than I was working at Microsoft, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, sure. It's more exciting. <laughs> it's like Pacific Northwest, that's where they're at, you know. Um, so I, I remember the, my first night in Seattle, before I even went into the office, I left my girlfriend in the hotel. We didn't have an apartment yet. And I went out solo camping for that night, just out in the woods. Uh, <laughs> this, I was that that excited to be there. She wasn't too pleased about that, but <laughs> well, well yeah, unless she's with you today, it doesn't matter. Does it? And if she is with you today, it doesn't matter either. So perfect. You won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so that got me into it and technology and it, it just seems like a good fit to get an eye in the sky early on. I got a drone, you know, when the phantom, when that came out, I can't remember which year it was at one point, uh, before the finding Bigfoot show, I teamed up with Adam, who does, uh, who is a uh, FAA certified drone pilot. He does a lot of work for the city of Jacksonville here in Florida. And he was the gentleman we used for the Finding Bigfoot reboot show, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he does anti poaching activities, and he's um, head of the Stop the Hunt, uh, which is a nationwide effort to to stop bear hunting. And they've been they've been really successful with various legal actions. Um, part of that effort, uh, he came to me and he's like, Rob, we're really having trouble uh, getting accurate estimates of bear populations. And <clears throat> the techniques that they used uh, are barbed wire and bait. And then they'll snag a little bit of hair of the bear and test it. And then from that little bit of data, they'll extrapolate bear populations in a given region. And then they they grant or deny bear hunting based on that. And so he came to me with this problem and I said, well, really what we need is a thermal drone in the air, you know? Um, so we, we pulled our resources and the first thermal drone that we got actually was a, uh, a hybrid gas and electric drone. And it's very loud but the benefit of that is you get five hours of continuous flight time. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, we used it extensively, like in Ocala National Forest and some other spots in Florida. And we were going to use it on the Finding Bigfoot show. Matt, I guess I was on the boards chatting and, um, you know, Matt got wind somehow of what we were doing and it like, you know, and that I was into Bigfoot and he, he kind of put the pieces together there. So he contacted me. And, um, anyway, uh, a few weeks before the show, uh, our, our gas hybrid drone fell out of the sky, <laughs> just wow. fell out of the sky. And it, so it was a disaster. So we fortunately had it insured. And instead of getting the same model, we, we got the Matrice 300 RTK, which is in the range of twenty dollars to $30,000. Um, that drone has about 45 minutes of airtime, and it was um, using the H20T camera. And it's, it's typically used by law enforcement and firefighting, search and rescue. It's a very serious drone. It can, it can fly in all, all season weather, you know, even heavy rain, and it's a great drone. 
but it is kind of pricey and there were some disadvantages to it and yeah yeah and you know by the way this might be a good time to mention to our drone nerds in the audience maybe now's a good time to pause this and go get a piece of paper and a pen uh, because I imagine Rob's going to be spitting out a lot of numbers and things like that because he's a drone guy too. And he knows this stuff. You probably know this stuff. Maybe you want to take some notes. So go ahead and do that if you feel like it. So the drone that you used on Finding Bigfoot was a brand new drone. Was it the first electrical drone that you had deployed for this kind of purpose? For this purpose, absolutely. You know, But we'd had several other runs in Ocala uh, at nighttime as well. And we had practice runs in West Virginia. So we weren't completely new the first night, but new-ish, I could say. And, and if you want, I, I'll just tell the listeners now what happened that night, because I, I don't think people know the inside story. No, no. So we, we always enjoy having the behind-the-scenes Finding Bigfoot guest on to kind of shed some light on the on the weird process it is making television. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll tell I'll tell everybody this, these guys are for real. It's not just a TV show. No, it, it's a it, they're serious squatching out there. You know, the TV is just uh, just a kind of a, a fifth wheel actually. They and they stay out of the way, right? They're they're very good at the TV crew about letting you guys do your thing. Well, we trained them over nine years, you know, it didn't start out that way, but after getting yelled at by everybody a few times, they started learning pretty quick, you know, it took a, took a while, but we eventually trained our core group of camera folks and producers to get the hell out of our way. <laughs> oh, and I'll say not everybody is like that. I, I don't know if I told you about that. I mean, I digress a little bit, but in California at the, uh, California Gate drone expedition that I went on with Matt Moneymaker, there was a German TV crew there that was filming for some German TV show. And as I'm bringing the drone in for a landing, it was actually on critical battery level. So it was, it was automatically coming in for a landing and their camera guy is standing right in my landing zone. And I'm like, move out of the way, shouting at him. And he, he just didn't move out of the way. And then you know, so I was like fighting the drone to try and avoid decapitating this idiot. And anyway, finally he got out of the way and I landed the drone and Matt was not happy with them. He went over and had some words with the, the German crew and I don't know what he said, but I didn't see them again for the rest of the expedition. <laughs> like, I don't know if they got back on a, on a plane and departed back to Germany or what, but yeah. TV and Bigfoot do not mix very easily, you know, not, not at all, not at all, as, as you saw. But anyway, go, go ahead and continue about the Finding Bigfoot episode then. Go ahead. Yeah, well, we got it. We had it. Um, we had a, a squatch on video, and we messed up massively. And so I'm, I apologize to all the listeners. Um, so Matt invited us to be on the show. Uh, we had a, a small company called THAMS Thermal Aerial Mammal Survey System, and we're using that for, for cataloging ungulate and bear populations, primarily in Florida, but we're starting to use it elsewhere as well. Anyway, I got on the show. I've always been a big fan of the show, and I thought this was really a good combination or good use of technology uh, to, to help find Sasquatch. And that night in West Virginia, for those of you who saw the show, there was two teams. Um, Cliff had a, a team, and it was not to the north, but it was um, indicated to be the north on the on the drone because the drone was facing south. So anyway, I'll just say he was up at the top, and Matt's uh, team was down below, and we had a hot target in between those 
two teams. And so you might have seen on the show that point where Bobo goes, it's moving, it's walking, and or where I call, Adam, Adam, it's it's moving, it's walking. That At that point, it moved, I don't know, maybe 100 feet uh, to the left, and we saw a figure that was about twice as big as Cliff, and it looked like it had two legs. I didn't see a body, I didn't see... Um, a wide body like a deer, like I should have seen, as it was, if that's what it was, moving to the left. And then it hunkered down. And so the problem was, you didn't see that on the show because we had a failure in recording it. We actually had a triple redundant system. So we have a SD card on the Matrice 300 RTK, which is our drone. We have an SD card in the controller itself that the pilot has. And then my software on my laptop was recording the video stream as well. And all three of those failed. And I can explain how. Right before that scene was our first flight. And as Adam took off, he got just above the tree line. And all of a sudden, his controller went dead. And so the drone is hovering there with no lights on. We can hear it above the trees, but his controller is completely blank. And so he was freaking out, <laughs> and it turned out he had, for some reason, it did a, uh, a complete firmware update, and it chose to do it right then, which is not good. <laughs> well, this is interesting for me to hear, too, because I, I, I haven't really spoken to you about all that event, um, those events that happened that night. I just have my own perspective uh, of where I was compared to where everybody else was, and, and we were just trying the uh, kind of an old old technique that has produced several times where I'm up alone, actually in a small group, I obviously had a camera guy with me. I wasn't alone, but I was, it was just me and a camera guy. And I think grandpa, the sound guy was with me, if I remember right. Although he might've been with the other group. And I was about halfway up the ridge line in a narrow Valley and moneymaker and Renee and his producer and camera folk were down below on the main trail. Now we did that because uh, we find that Sasquatches pay attention to the main trail part if they're making noise and they had a much larger group. And then that gives a person like me, who's a little bit quieter and up on the side, a little bit more um, agile in movement because there's only one of me to uh, perhaps see the Sasquatch. And we we're just going to walk up the valley until we heard noise and, or if we heard noise. Um, but luckily there, I think there was a, what was it, Rob? Was it like the week before there was a sighting in that same valley? Is that right? I, my memory is not serving me, but it's something like that and our footprint or something, but it was something like we had very recent activity at that exact location, maybe even a couple days before the scouting crew. Now that I'm thinking of it, Joe Perdue, I know more about that. Yeah, but we were, we were going up there and sure enough, we heard knocks or at least I heard knocks, um, I think twice moving up the valley. So we deployed the drone to go up the valley. And I guess that's when everything started going haywire there, right? Yeah. So, so after that firmware update, the uh, the drone came online, everything was fine, and we flew out there, and then we, we spotted uh, a hot target. It was definitely alive and definitely large, larger than the people that we could see. And then as Adams focused on it, sure enough, it, it booked it like maybe 100 feet to the left and up as Matt's team was moving towards it. So it got spooked and it, it relocated itself, right? And right after that happened, and we all screamed and like Bobo and everybody, it's moving, it's walking. And then I'm like, Adam, you're not recording because I could see the indicator. 
he had he had been so freaked out by the whole reboot and everything he forgot to hit record so that <laughs> so that he immediately started recording but at that point it was already starting to like get under some brush which I'll talk about in a minute anyway um the fact that he wasn't recording because he'd been flustered by almost losing the drone moments earlier uh, means that the, the SD card in the controller and the SD card in the drone itself were useless because he wasn't recording. And then I thought, okay, okay, I've got my laptop running and it's recording the video stream. So we're golden. We're good there. Plus, we've got all these cameras of people around me. So I thought for sure we, we've got the footage of what just happened. But then when everybody came back and we're like, we're, we're going to relocate to another place, I just shut the lid on my laptop. And the problem is it was still caching in memory and writing to disk. It hadn't finished writing the stream to disk. So I messed up and I missed the, the critical part um, when I went back to look at it later. So we, we had a, a, a triple failure there. Oh, it's agonizing. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. So, uh, the, the, uh, but they showed a little blip moving on the, the episode. It was, so that was not actually from the, uh, any of the clips, or is that an earlier clip that we obtained somehow and kept, or what was that? Correct, yeah. So it's, um, it's true that that was an unknown figure, but I am like 99% sure that was a person. It could have been another, um, cause there, cause we have more footage of that and, and it was on a different time frame. Like, well, this is the first, the, the first location though, not the second one, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. The second location. No, that was a rock. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a rock for sure. But I know by the, um, radio metric. So, I don't know if you want me to get into those well, details. Now, but. Well, um, let's talk about the first figure. So how, we were the only ones in that valley, and no one broke off from the main group. So how could that be, end up being a person? You talking about the clip that they showed on the show, or the one that we that Bobo and I saw that we that we never? Um... Now the one that was on the show, the, the only one that I'm aware of, because I, I don't I don't know whatever happened. This is this is all news to me too. I never knew, heard what happened. So yeah, the, I'm pretty sure that that was a person um, I, because I have more more footage of that scene, and although they're a little bit separate from the group, they're not that far from the group. And I think if I remember right, they're carrying something like a jacket. Um, so you can, you can see more detail of that. Um, but we're, um, we're not sure exactly. I remember talking to the producer and trying to figure out exactly who that was, whether it was like another hiker, possibly. Do you think there are other hikers there? Yeah, I, I know. I saw at least one person go in while we were setting up at base camp. Um, and, and actually two people, cause there was a woman with a dog that went, went back in there. Um, so, but, I, but definitely the figure that we saw that ran, I mean, first of all, it was too big to be a person. Second of all, 
Um, it was deep in the bush. It wasn't on the trail like that other figure was. And, and then it hunkered down. So it, it booked it from about a hundred feet over relocated and then it got bluer and bluer. So it was either going underneath foliage and, I, and we've seen this now with other animals like deer when they, they'll, they'll get into a thicker bush and it looks like the signal's disappearing because they're, they're just getting under more and more foliage. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that thermal imagers do not see through things. They might be able to see a glint of heat popping through if something isn't totally obscured. But if it's something goes behind a bush or behind a tree or behind a, you can't see it. It doesn't automatically. It doesn't like X-ray vision through the forest. You actually have to see the surface of the animal itself. So if something's hiding, a therm is going to help. Yeah, yeah. You might see some some uh, uh, radiant heat um, through like light foliage. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's better than a, than an optical that cannot see anything through any leaves. Um, but I, I have been able to find, you know, groups of of people quite easily, even though they're under tree cover. Uh, so, you know, it's better than you would think, but if you go under deep enough foliage, yeah, it, it, the, the, uh, depending on how you have it set up, it just gets bluer and bluer. So instead of the red hot, orange hot, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll get weaker and weaker. In hindsight, what we should have done is um, we should have directed you, Cliff, right on top of the target. You know, uh, hope you have your bear spray with you. But <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, what it was, but we should have um, directed you. You got pretty close to it, but you couldn't see it on your therm. No, I heard it at one point going through the brush, but um, I was also up on that ridge, and I'm not sure how I could have made it down that bridge. It was pretty treacherous at that particular place um, where it was. Lots of downfalls, lots of brush everywhere, um, dead trees from the storm. There was a lot of um, obstruction on that hill. I'm not sure if I could have made it down, honestly, but I sure would have tried, especially wearing that stupid backpack. God. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't realize how, how rough that train was. You, you might not have been able to reach it. But it wasn't that big of an area, though, because I remember I was seeing the other team through the thermal imager. And that, that's what's befuddling me listen, listening to your, your perspective of it right now is that the, 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 the other team was probably 200 yards from me at the most. Um, and, you know, I believe that park is closed after dark. So hikers would have had to have been out by there by then legally, um, and we were we had a special permit to be there. I don't think that people were allowed in there, and the part that other party was so close to me, I can't see how anybody would be hiking in that area without us knowing about it. Because there was one trail in down on the bottom, there was one trail where I was, and that's it. So it's a little perplexing to me for you to hear that. Um, what, what, what a strange person to be breaking the law, hiking off trail after dark in a place you're not supposed to be. So interesting. Well, and the people that I saw go in might've come back out, um, before we got started, you know, before nightfall as possible. Yeah. Cause they're not, they're not supposed to be in there after dark. It's a closes down after at dusk, I believe. So that's, that's what happened. It, um, we, we saw it, we missed the key footage when it was running or walking very quickly and um, it was very large, and then it, it got fainter and fainter. We, we still have lots of footage of where it's very faint. Yeah, I, I think that um, they hunker down. You know, when you're, when you're droning, they're typically not fleeing as like a deer or ungulate would. They're, um, 
they're hiding. And that just makes drone squatching a lot harder. Yeah, that's their MO. I mean, sure, they want to leave the area, but a lot of reports, um, when the Sasquatch knows that it's being observed or or is maybe isn't even sure that it's being observed yet, one of the first things they often do is totally freeze. Because if you're not moving at all, you're probably not going to be seen out in the environment in which they choose to live. But if they know the gig's up, they're probably going to hide or just leave the area, depending on where you are. Yeah, so that makes it a lot harder if, if you don't have motion um, and if you have a small screen that you're looking at, uh, it makes it hard to, to pick out the, um, the target of interest. But obviously, your, your systems seem to function okay. If you got a good look at it and just kind of blew it because we weren't recording, at least you got a good look at it, and that's some sort of success from your end. Because you're, you're, this, is, this isn't a sprint. This isn't a do-this-for-the-episode uh, sort of endeavor for you. This is a long-term sort of marathon um, that you're running here. So what did you learn from the Finding Bigfoot experience um, about droning and spe- Sasquatches specifically? And uh, moving forward, how have you uh, changed your system? Ah, excellent, excellent question. <laughs> so, um, first of all, technology is advancing so rapidly, and it's coming down in price. And I'm very, very excited about that because one of the big problems with drone squatching is noise the uh, the noise that is generated by the the aircraft. And I can go through some of the options there, but we have a, a, a beast the the Matrice 300 RTK is is pretty loud. Um, I believe it's at 55 decibels. Um, And so you want to have a higher altitude so that you're not spooking the animals and then zoom in with the camera. Our camera that we used in West Virginia is uh, an eight-time zoom with the FLIR, and it's a H20T. So we were able to get up like 800, uh, seven, 800 feet and zoom in on our targets uh, without having to reposition. But there's a new camera that just came out that is the uh, H20N. And this has two starlight sensor cameras built in and two thermal cameras. And it has a 32 times zoom. So this is compatible with our same drone where once we get this camera, we'll be able to mount that and be able to maintain higher altitudes so we don't spook the animals and super zoom in on them to get a look at them and use the starlight, which um, uh, I send in a, a link for that so you get an idea. It's, it's amazing. You know, under like half moon, uh, you get cl- like clear as day pictures. So you can get both side by side, the thermal and the starlight, so you'll be able to identify, oh, is that a rock or is it a, a, a squatch crouched down, you know? Is it in color or is it in green like uh, the other uh, starlight scopes are? It's like gray. Grayish, okay, okay. Well, there is that, there is that new movement now with, a, not such a movement, but a new technology about a color night vision. I've seen some of the examples of that. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I, I've actually contacted uh, one of the manufacturers. They have a... Um, a place here in Florida and a place in uh, uh, Nevada, if I remember right, um, begging to get like any access to that. No, no response yet, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would I would love to be able to try that out. Yeah. So you've upgraded your technology on the drone here, um, and what what? But um, 
there, there's got to be something about how you deploy that technology um, that you're, that's got to be a pretty steep learning curve for Sasquatches. Like, what have you learned about actually deploying these and just comparing like how many bear or elk or other animals that you see by doing various things? Like, that, I, don't, I don't know if I'm asking the question right, but do, do, you, do you hear the song I'm singing? Yeah, I think so. Um, learning from that mission because uh, it's vastly different than the other applications of technology. Typically, when we're doing a, a, a survey, we, we try to cover as much land as we can, and we'll just do either a spiral pattern or we'll mow the lawn, they so to speak, um, covering as much area as we can, and then we review the video footage afterwards. So it's a very different operation profile than... Um, Drone squatching. With drone squatching, we're typically an add-on to a ground team. So in, in West Virginia or in, in California, um, we learned a lot on the Finding Bigfoot show that we then applied to the California Gate Expedition, which was an awesome expedition led by, by Matt Moneymaker um, later in California. And one of the learnings was coordinating with the ground team better. So we had... Um, these zones mapped out in advance. And so when somebody heard a knock or spotted something, they, they would say, all right, zone one, or it's by this landmark. And we were able to very quickly get the drone airborne and over to the spot that we wanted to survey. So that was all very good. But of course, the problem there was that area is littered with rocks that absorb the heat during the day. And it was really hard to distinguish targets from the very hot boulders that were everywhere. Sure. So different pro you solve one problem and you got eight more to solve. Right. And people don't realize, uh, when they, when they see like a 45 minute flight time, they think, Oh, you're hovering over that drone for 45 minutes. But that, that's not the reality of it. Cause uh, you have to think about the time that that's a max limit. They always estimate the max and there's the time flying out to the target. And then um, any headwinds that you're fighting will drain the battery more. And then if you hit a critical phase, the drone will automatically try to fly back home. And if it gets super critical, it'll automatically land wherever it is in the middle of a forest or over a lake. <laughs> so yeah. you never want to push it that far, right? You want to get it back back home uh, before the battery hits that that critical phase. So realistically, I mean, you're lucky if you get five to eight minutes over a target area. Wow. Like once you subtract everything, uh, even with the high-end drone, that, that makes a big difference. Well, you know, something we haven't spoken about is uh, on the back end, I guess, of this. And it's something that I'm assuming you had a lot to do with. I don't you have some sort of um, script or AI for identifying animals based on their thermal signature? I do. Yeah. yeah tell us about that. Cause that's fascinating. Share a little bit of insight uh, into that too. Um, as long as I don't get anybody in trouble. So early on, I wrote an AI system to identify targets and I'm reusing a lot of code from, uh, a publicly available under Microsoft's AI for Earth initiative code. And I was partnering with another company uh, outside of Microsoft that does animal recognition. And they were interested in what I was working on because my system supports thermal and video streams and their system doesn't support that. But on the other hand, they have a huge library of trained models to recognize bear um, and ungulates and, and all kinds of animals. Um, in fact, 
they're so sophisticated that they're able to identify individual bears to catalog mm-hmm. them. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, and there's white papers on that. So anyway, I was, um, working on this system. We did use it in West Virginia. We're using it in Ocala. It's even being used for some, uh, rhino poaching efforts in Africa, anti rhino poaching efforts and cataloging animals there. I digress. Anyway, but what was really interesting was I was working on it and collaborating with this. I won't mention the name of the, the company. And then it was getting time for me to go on the show. And I, I told the guy, Hey, you're going to laugh at me, but you know, we're not just using this system for animal conservation. I, I plan to use it in this finding Bigfoot show to find Bigfoot. Right. I expected him to kind of laugh at that. And he was quiet and he says, uh, Robert, I know Bigfoot's real. My whole team knows Bigfoot's real, and I've got a ton of pictures of them. I said, excuse me? (laughs) So it turns out his system is used by universities all over the country. They have game cameras set up in the woods, and the the pictures get fed through his AI system, and any of the pictures that that the AI system doesn't recognize get flagged for manual review and he and his team review them. And, um, evidently he's got some very interesting pictures and I asked him why he doesn't put those public. He said he doesn't own them. The universities do, uh, why don't the universities share them? He said they're scared of ridicule and so forth. I know this is kind of, he said, she said, but I, I don't know. I found it fascinating. I have no reason to doubt what he was telling me. And, um, I think someday there's going to be a flood of, of, of evidence and great pictures. Oh, guaranteed, guaranteed. As soon as a dead one shows up and the whole mystery part of this thing is over, there will, there'll be tons of footage coming out. Cause you know, I've seen pictures that aren't, aren't out there. And m- most big footers have been in the game. As long as I have, I've seen at least one or two pretty good things over the time, uh, that they've been in the game. And where are these things? They're just sitting around on somebody's hard drive because they don't want to share them out of ridicule. But universities not wanting to share them out of ridicule is a new one for me because that would bring so much money and attention to their university. That one doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would they sit on that? You know, because the ridicule can turn into dollar bills for the university with grant money and all that other stuff. Yeah, I don't know. But they're doing like specific wildlife studies on specific species. So I, I don't know why they wouldn't share it. And I have no reason to doubt what he was saying. Um, you know, so I don't know. I don't know what to do with that one, you know, but yeah, well, it's just another one of these things it's, until somebody can verify it. It's just another unsubstantiated rumor. I hope it's true. I sincerely do hope it's true. Um, I don't doubt it. Actually, I wouldn't doubt that something like that. It just makes this weird. It's a weird short-sighted uh, thought process that, about, oh, I don't want people to laugh at our university because we have a bunch of pictures of a Sasquatch that we can identify as an individual. And it's like that, 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 that doesn't sound right to me. Maybe they're scared of losing their funding or people would accuse them of a hoax or I don't know. I I don't know why they would do that. I don't know, especially if it's um, you know supportable by other universities getting similar eff- similar results through their efforts. Yeah, I think he should just 
put it on a share somewhere, like a secret share, or or bring his laptop over to your museum at least and show it to you. Maybe sure. maybe maybe accidentally leave a thumb drive with a few hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well, it wouldn't even wouldn't even need to do that. If I mean, uh, I, I don't know where these guys are, and you know, it doesn't matter really. But um, if if they did come by, I would just look at it, and I've probably got some stuff that he hasn't seen before. So I'd just be happy to share, you know. But um, I don't know. It's unfortunate that 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 roadblock is out there, that pure pressure roadblock of um, humiliation and stuff uh, just once again gets in the way of, of moving this ball down the field, you know? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, so I know that a lot of our audience is interested in drone squatching, um, and I think that it has a lot of promise. It has a lot of um, challenges as well. And since you've you know you've already thrown your hat into the drone ring, and you have a lot of experience with this sort of stuff, maybe you can um, give some suggestions to our listeners who might be interested in pursuing this. Um, maybe about gear or techniques, or um, maybe price point. Um, any, I think any uh, information you can share from your experience would be helpful to some of our audience so what enlighten us give us some words of wisdom here if we want to go down this road sure absolutely um so you might be tempted by some of the uh, low range there, there's two options in the low range the the parrot bebop and the unec h520 whoa whoa parent bebop is that parrot bebop is that, is that a brand that's the brand name of the drone Oh, okay. Okay. And a model. All right. Again, you're talking to somebody who knows nothing. So assume our audience also doesn't know very much because at least I'll understand what you're talking about. There's, there's two model of drones, uh, brands. One is the Parrot Bebop and the other is the Unec. Um, they're both under 2000 and I strongly do not recommend you get either one of them. <laughs> Why? Because they only have a FLIR resolution of 160 by 120 and they have around nine frames per second. So even if you're pretty much over a squatch, you're going to have trouble distinguishing what it is. It's really at a kind of an unusable level, like the very early FLIRs handhelds. Um, instead, if you do have $2,000 you want to spend on, on drone squatching, what I recommend is find two or three other people that have that amount and pool your money and get the new DJI Mavic 2 Enterprise Advanced. That was just released last year, and um, the base price is $6,500. You're, you're probably going to spend closer to 10000 once you add extra batteries and everything else. But um, my point there is that is a, a very effective drone. It is a 640 resolution by 512, and it supports radiometric. What is that? What is radiometric? Radiometric, great question. So radiometric really doesn't affect the uh, image or video quality that you're viewing uh, when you see it on the screen. However, it's critical because every frame is saved at the pixel level with accurate thermal reading data. So afterwards, you can go back and use the tools to see definitively, was that a boulder or was that an animal hiding? Okay, so basically radiometric is a way that the technology saves the information with more than just visible information. It saves the, um, the thermographic information, the heat information as well. Exactly, at a per pixel level. So it's critical for that afterward analysis. 
And there's a, a couple of options in that mid-range. The uh, Autel Evo 2 has been out a little bit longer, but I recommend the new DJI Mavic. It's um, very stable, very reliable. DJI is the leading, leading brand, and that resolution. It's also very small and compact. Uh, another huge benefit to this over the, the more expensive options is the, the batteries. You can actually travel uh, as carry-on with this drone and these batteries. So you can bring it on an airplane if you're going drone squatching out, out of state. It's a huge benefit. Oh, yeah, because you, you have to carry the batteries with you because they're lithium, right? Yeah, and you can't ship them other than ground. So like with our Matrice, we had to ship everything in advance ground because the batteries can't be on a flight at all. So, uh, so th- that's the mid-level range. What, what's the high one? So, because we have a couple people that listen to probably have some money, what would they get? And, and for the rest of us, what could we look at for and, and salivate over to wish we had? Yeah. So the high range, the Matrice 300 RTK is still the leader in that, and that's the twenty to thirty thousand range. Uh, base price of the drone itself is around $13,000. And then the camera, like if you get the new uh, H20N, that camera is also $13,000. In addition to the 20 to 30? No. So the 20 to 30 total. So so I'm just breaking down the, the price. The camera is expensive. The base price of the Matrice is expensive, but you can switch out different payloads, right? Different different types of cameras. Uh, you have the, the charging station. The batteries themselves are, are around $800 for the battery. We had 10 batteries uh, in West Virginia. So it adds up pretty quickly, but that's the, that's the professional grade that is used by law enforcement, firefighting, search and rescue. It can stay in the air longer, and you have this super 32 times zoom camera. It's, it's pretty impressive. There is a range even above that if you're looking to spend sixty dollars to $90,000. One of the nonprofits we work with in Africa has a, a VTOL aircraft that is um, able to cover 30 square miles. It stays up in the air for like eight or nine hours. Uh, it's gas powered. You know, that's, that's, I would love one day for us to get one of those here or take it out to Alaska and do some extensive, uh, you know, surveying of, of wildlife over a much larger area. That'd be awesome. How much work do you do for nonprofits and what kind of work is it? Like how is this technology deployed for wildlife conservation? That's a great question. Adam would probably be the best to, to go into that. But so through his nonprofit, um, One Protest, which is a, an umbrella nonprofit, he has other ones such as Stop the Bear Hunt. And he also does work with uh, law enforcement on anti-poaching activities. He's using the drone, uh, I would say, twice twice a month. He's doing some, some mission, some survey, um, whether it's cataloging wildlife populations in a particular area or whether it's in coordination with law enforcement, like I said, for anti-poaching. He did a huge campaign to stop, um, what is it called? They, they use dogs in hunting. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a big, um, a big effort in that in which the drum was used. So we, he uses that for that purpose primarily. And then I get to do my, my drone, uh, squatching trips, you know, every couple of months. My last one was in Vermont in December. And, uh, I have one coming up in Ohio. Actually, I need to get the word out. We need a replacement 
pilot for that because Adam's not going to be available in September in Ohio, uh, where uh, Matt Moneymaker is is doing a, um, a drone squatching expedition. I think in the same area you were recently, actually, Cliff, remember you talked about there's a peninsula above where the conference center is across mm-hmm. the lake where you had some mm-hmm. activity. That's the exact spot where we want to drone squatch. Yeah. So we've been mapping it out and figuring out where, where our base is going to be and how the logistics of it. But right now we need a, we need a pilot. So I do want to get the word out to anybody that is FAA certified with a drone, a current drone license pilot, um, uh, sorry, drone pilot license. Uh, if you're available in September, if you preferably have experience flying the Matrice 300 RTK, you know, if you can reach out to us or, or to Matt through BFRO, we, we're looking for a pilot. Okay, so if people if people are qualified and they want to be a drone pilot on a on a drone squatching trip, a legit drone squatching trip in September at some point, um, they can probably write to Matt or any of the BFRO people, and they'll funnel it to you somehow. At, uh, I think it's what a contact at bfro.net, I think is probably the best um, the best email address to reach out and maybe put drone pilot or something like that in the subject. Exactly. Please uh, go to bfro.net and. Tell them that you're interested. Put drone pilot in there, and it'll get through to Matt, and eventually to me. <laughs> so that'd be great. So you're gonna be working at, um, in Ohio doing the same sort of thing. Do you have any other uh, trips planned um, for Bigfoot purposes? No, but um, I'm always up for more trips. Now that I'm semi-retired, um, I have more time to dedicate to this, and the technology is advancing so quickly. You know, there's so many areas that we want to go and check out. I'd love to see the blueberry bog at some point. Get a get a drone over there. Oh yeah, that would be fantastic. Uh, mosquitoes are kind of keeping us out of there for right now. So perhaps <laughs> you know, second half of July or later. Yeah, I was there last week for just a quick overnighter, and uh, you know, I wasn't chased out, but apparently my guys were there the next night, and um, they said it was bad. It was really bad. And I've, I've been been to a lot of uh, mosquito-y places in my time. You know, I've, I've been to Alaska, I've been to Minnesota and, and all that other stuff, but the blueberry bog is as bad as any of them this time of year. So we got to wait a few weeks to get back in there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they'll think the drone is like their queen, uh, mosquito has come you know, driving <laughs> all the way. <laughs> the hive queen mother has come home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, which actually that brings up some, brings up a question I've always had about drone. Cause I've been resistant with the drone thing off and on until I saw what you guys were doing. And I thought, Oh, this actually does have hope, but how does one deal with the noise of the drones scaring the wildlife? Yeah, it's the number one concern, the noise. That's that's why um, Adam kept it at such a high altitude, even though people were saying, you know, please swoop down there, get a closer look. You know, we, we don't want to spook the wildlife. Uh, for the most part, the ungulates um, ig- ignore it. Uh, like, we rarely even will look up. You know, it's just past a certain uh, altitude, depending on the decibel level. Since the West Virginia trip, we equipped it with high altitude blades, and that dramatically reduces the, uh, the noise level, that alone. It's the mm. shape of the blades. It makes it much quieter. So that in combination with the newer camera, we're able to get greater altitude and just zoom in more. The other drone, the smaller mid-level that I talked about, the Mavic, that is quiet. That is super whisper quiet anyway. And then that one also has high altitude blades. When you combine that, I've had that about hmm, 
50 feet, 100 feet, you can't even hear it's there. Like you could be practically overhead of someone and it, and you just hear a slight noise. So hmm. dramatically um, depends on which type of drone you're using and the altitude and, and all of that. You know, a few weeks ago, I was in the Blue Mountains. Um, Moneymaker was on this job as well. He's the guy that hooked me up with it. And we were filming a TV show for a Japanese TV production. It's going to be aired in Japan in uh, August, from what I understand. Um, and they invited this guy out. Um, and uh, he had a series of drones that were tiny, you know, like the, the kind of like, uh, here, 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 nephew, that's 10 years old. I'm going to buy you one of these remote control helicopters from Toys R Us or whatever toy store still exists. And, um, and you can fly it around the living room. Like, you know, the, like the six to eight inch toy helicopters. They, they were, oh, sorry to interrupt. They, they were FLIR Hornets. So Matt told me about it. They're awesome. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, they definitely have their uh, limitations. Um, like, like for example, uh, um, pixels. Um, the the FLIR cameras are are very pixelated because they're just so tiny. These things weigh like six or eight ounces. They're almost totally quiet until they're right on top of you. You know, the military use these things. SWAT teams use these things to get up, like um, in the face of people who you know would obviously shoot these things out of the sky if they knew they were being observed. Um, and of course, they, they, he wore he, he wore like this belt um, that went around his waist, almost like an ammunition belt. And when the 20 minutes was up with one drone, he would just snap it into this belt and then pull out another drone from his thing. And then boom, it would take off and do another 20 minutes. And he had four, four or five of these things in his belt. And by the time that he was done going through all of them, the first one was fully charged again. And he would just cycle them all like that. Um, and the main selling point of these, I guess, um, would be the size and the silence. Because um, it certainly is, isn't the FLIR quality yet. But if that technology kept pushing forward, as I'm sure it will, well, then maybe we're on to something. Yeah. Um, I know the drones that you're talking about. And Matt was telling me about it. And the, those are military-grade drones. They're they're very small. They're not quadcopters. They have a, a single rotor. Um, and they're, they're typically used by the military for, uh, like, breaching. Uh, they'll send it into a room to check, you know, where the bad guys are before breaching. Um, but you could theoretically use that in, say, a forest situation and fly around the trees you know so the smaller drones even the mavic um there, there's even sports around that where people do drone racing in and around trees very quickly so that is adding a whole new level so that way you're you're in the underbrush and looking for the sasquatch versus trying to see them above the the tree cover uh, it's it's exciting yeah, I think it holds a lot of promise. And it's, that military stuff, I don't feel is quite there yet, but another 10 or 20 years, and I think these will be flying all over, probably fully automated and cataloging things using your AI system that you scripted, at least as a basis, um, and going and getting all sorts of interesting shots and videos of all sorts of critters. But it's very, very promising and a very, very encouraging trip as far as the technology goes. It was a good gig, and we got exposed to really neat technology. So since we're talking about drones, I thought I'd talk about a little bit of the future of droning that I saw. But what is the future of droning as far as you're concerned? Like, what are you waiting um, for to come out that you know is on the horizon? Well, you touched on one of them is like the battery time. There, There is a new battery out that uh, DJI has also recently released this past year that um, is targeted towards for first responders, and it 
uh, if I'm remembering the stats right, it reaches a 90% charge in 30 minutes. So the idea, similarly, is while you're up in the air, it's charging batteries. So when you get back, you can just keep cycling them through. You know, we didn't have that benefit in West Virginia. That's why you know it took like all night to charge the batteries, and we only had the ten batteries that were fully charged. Um, so, so this will make a big difference being able to cycle through. Also, just the the length of time in the air. That forty five minutes seems like a long time, but it's really not long enough. The hybrid drones, you know, that's that's probably going to be our next big purchase. We'll be going back to the hybrid drone. Uh, there's a great company, Harris Drones, here in Florida. We've been invited to go uh, tour them and and see their latest and greatest drones. You know, that five hour flight time is is hard to beat. And, uh, and and they have a new power generator that's significantly more quiet. So it's possible that that in combination with the new H20N camera that gives us that 32 times zoom so we can get a higher altitude and maintain over the target for hours at a time, that's the, that's the direction I'm excited about. That'll be awesome. And are you going to be there on the cutting edge and pushing the technology that direction as it happens? Um, or is it going to be a slow, cautious approach to kind of see how other people are testing at the machinery um, before you go ahead and make the move on these more expensive and higher uh, definition items? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not working for Microsoft anymore, so I'm not working on the AI. I mean, although that was... I was outside of Microsoft anyway, but I'm 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 not doing as much time with like the software development, pushing things forward myself. But definitely, and consuming it, definitely using it for squatching, <laughs> um, and and spending my money on it. Um, some things I'm I'm comfortable with, like the DGI products right away. But the uh, the hybrid drones, since we had one fall out of the sky, literally, I'm I'm very more cautious about that, and they're very expensive. Anybody that's getting into this, by the way, you do need to uh, get insurance for your drone, especially if you're doing a mid level or high end. And um, there there's one thing we found, like Verify is a an app that supplies uh, temporary insurance while you're doing droning within a a certain area. Um, as well as like personal injury coverage. And, you know, that saved us versus having to do an independent insurance contract. I'm kind of jumping all over the place. No, no, that, that matters because drones, I mean, I've been on shoots where we lost a drone. You know, it was one of those phantoms at the time and it was a four corners episode. And, you know, I've flown, I have flown drones on TV a number of times. Um, I find it very stressful and difficult, frankly. It's not as much fun as it looks at all. Um, I have a hard time seeing it and all that other stuff. And then the FAA said you had to have a, a license and then say, well, I'm not, I didn't get one of those. So um, Adam Foskey, one of our uh, tech guys on the show, ended up getting his FAA license. So, you know, on that Four Corners episode, like I got it off the ground or whatever. But I just pass it to Adam after that, you know, because I wasn't going to fly on TV illegally um, for commercial reasons. Um, so Adam did all the, the hard work for me. Basically, plus I don't like it, and I'm not that good at it. Adam's really a, a good drone pilot, so we let him do it. But um, on that Four Corners episode where where I lose the drone, that was Adam losing the drone. Um, I just took the hit for him. So um, like, and he lost it legit. You know, he picked, he put it right above the tree line, and then wind gusts happened. Thirty plus mile per hour wind gusts were off and on all day. Um, but we thought it was all over with, but one 
came up and swept that drone away, and we never saw it again. As far as we know, it is still down there, uh, I think in the San Juan River on the Navajo Reservation outside Farmington. So if you find that drone, I'd l- keep the drone. I just want the card back. P.O. Box 2012, Sandy, Oregon, <laughs> 97055. I would love to have that card back. It'd be great to see it. But um, yeah, so drone insurance is no joke. So I'm glad you brought this up because anybody that's going to invest a few thousand dollars into a hobby probably wants to have a little bit of insurance with it. Probably Sasquatch has your drone as a decoration in their in their cave or, or somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> One could know. hope, I guess. One could hope. You touched on something really good, though, is the stress factor. When you're piloting one of these things, especially the the massive one that could literally kill somebody if it lands on them, it's very stressful, you know. Um, and you're looking at a small screen and you're trying to time everything right and get the right footage. I don't recommend that that people do all nighters like we did with the Finding Bigfoot ep- episode. What we did in California instead was. Um, just uh, two hour, two to three hour stents in the morning, uh, early morning, getting up, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning, and then droning until dawn. Um, and if you're going to do evening as well, I would say have a different drone pilot because you you just max out the. Per- There's only so much that you can be effective, and, uh, and past that, it gets dangerous. Yeah, because these aren't just toys. I mean, these are like legitimate tools. And like any other legitimate high-end tool, it could kill you or do some damage to you in some degree. Um, you know, I, I picture a power saw. Yeah, it's potentially dangerous, right? But a really useful tool. And certainly a drone would have to fall in that same category. Um, but not only could it do danger to you, but it could also take $20,000 out of your pocketbook with the flip of a switch. Because um, I can't even imagine flying something that expensive for fun because uh, the two thousand dollar ones were really stressing me out <laughs> <laughs> yeah well well when you start getting results it, yeah it's fun but like you said it, it's very stressful so re- recommend people limiting the time you as far as i as far as i can tell you are at the forefront of the droning sasquatch technology pushing it forward um you're going to be probably attending a couple of the bfro expeditions i'm assuming in the next 12 or 18 months um but we don't know which ones do do you know if matt announces that you're going to be on those trips beforehand or is it just kind of luck of the draw uh probably luck of the draw i mean the big one coming up is this the september event in ohio that i mentioned yeah and you're still looking for volunteers for that too correct yeah we, we do want to find a, a replacement drone pilot for that. And yeah, I, I would love to go back out to California. Uh, I've never heard so many knocks and whistles in, in all my years of squatching as I did in that one spot, the California Gate area. Yeah, which is where our, our two uh, previous guests filmed a Sasquatch in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Correct. Yeah, just so, for our listeners uh, to kind of tune in to, <laughs> so that they know who we're talking about here. <laughs> Yeah, that area is awesome. I would love to go back there. Uh, despite the hot rocks, you know, with the higher resolution and with the um, the starlight camera, so we can see, hey, is that a hot rock or a squatch? Like that's an area I definitely want to go back to. And who knows? You know, it'd be cool for other people that are into this, that are just getting into this, to kind of team up, so you can have drone squatch teams in various areas. Um, we should start a chat room or something or a meetup session. 
Well, I can see that that might be eventually be a nice arm for the BFRO somehow to have a, a qualified and licensed drone pilots in various parts of the country. So when there is a smattering of sightings, which often happens, uh, sightings happen in a, a small amount of area and over a small amount of time, uh, maybe that'd be a good area to, to for Matt or you or whoever to deploy people to. Imagine the, the usefulness of getting two or three of you guys in the same valley. Exactly. Yeah, I, I occasionally get sent out to check out sightings like um, a Green Swamp. Matt sent me down there in Florida. But yeah, imagine if we had that all over the country, right? Send out a drone pilot, go check it out. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's interesting, especially if everybody has the same or similar technology, similar quality technology. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing. But you know, you never know what Bigfooting is going to turn into in the next five or 10, 20 years. It's been been a weird journey so far, and we'll see where the technology takes us next, I guess. so. Yeah, okay, so if you want to go squashing with Rob and be a drone pilot, they're looking for a volunteer in the Ohio general area um, sometime in September. If you're qualified and have an FAA license and would like to give this a shot, go ahead and reach out to Moneymaker and Rob through the BFRO website. Uh, contact us at bfro.net um and hopefully uh hopefully you get to go bigfooting with rob and check things out so so rob if, if people are interested in what you're doing and want to catch up is, is is there a place they can follow you like one of your websites somewhere or, or what's up with that how can people learn a little bit more about this sort of thing in your efforts not you know i don't have any youtube channel or anything like that um so i'm, I'm not that much in the public eye um but you might meet up with me at a conference or BFRO expedition. Um, like you said, maybe I should start building a network of fellow drone squatchers. That's a good idea. I, I should throw together a website. Yeah, yeah, maybe you should. Maybe you should. So, yeah, if you want to get in touch with Rob, too bad. There's no way to do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the truth is harsh sometimes, but that's all right. Um, at least we had a chance to have you come on the podcast today. And of course, if you do get a website or something up and running, I'm sure people will be able to find it pretty quick. Um, they can either contact me or Moneymaker or somebody like that. We can point them in the right direction once we know it exists. Sounds good. All right, Rob. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Anything else you want to share before we before we go here? Uh, no, it's awesome. And, you know, I, I want more... Um Bobo story time, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, Bobo's not here, of course. I could simulate one. Oh, man, this thing happened, and it was cool and weird, and I didn't expect it. Dude, it was awesome. There you go. <laughs> there you good. go. There, there's a, a condensed version of Bobo's story time for a second. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> as, as long as it doesn't involve a pizza box, I'm good. Oh, that one. Oh, you should hear the ones that he's so re- he's just so adamant about not telling on the air. They're the best. <laughs> All right, so Rob, thank you very much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Um, And thank you for listening, all you guys out there listening in your cars and at home and on your computer and everywhere else. We really appreciate it. Um, Thanks for spreading the word and helping the podcast grow. And uh, other than that, talk to you next week and keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 